Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Weapon of Choice Podcast for another episode. And we're excited that uh, we're getting these out to you. So appreciate you tuning in. Um, We did a couple bonus episodes this season. We're probably going to be putting another one out um having to do with all this ice bullshit so you know look out for something any day now and we might have put it up before this one we'll see how that how that went how it all shook out um protesting ice talking to uh immigrant rights organizers and and all of that um because we got to keep showing up right um, so I'm excited to bring you a new episode. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for following us. And if you don't follow us yet on the social media, we are on Instagram at Weapon of Choice Podcast, on Facebook at Weapon of Choice Podcast, on Twitter at Weapon Choice Pod. You can find us on our website, specialmenuproductions.com. Whatever platform, wherever you're getting your podcasts, we're there. Um, if any of those platforms allow you to rate and review us, please do. If you're using Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please, 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 we really appreciate. If and when you go give it the five stars and write a little bit of a review, it takes a couple minutes. You can write one sentence. You can write half a sentence. You can write two paragraphs. We appreciate it all and uh, just help us get seen a little more. Because we see you, we know you're listening, and we really appreciate that. Um, and we appreciate uh, all of these conversations we get to have with these amazing creators, artists, um, freedom fighters, organizers, all of these folks. I mean, it honestly makes me, and it like really makes me happy that we have on a lot of brilliant weirdos, you know what I mean? Like just doing their thing in a lot of ways, multifaceted. In some unbelievable ways, doing doing great things, very inspirational. I'm not just saying that. And I know folks out there who listen to the show are inspired by the words um, that they hear from our guests on this show. I mean, a lot of the words that they speak when I'm interviewing them and when I listen back, um, they go right through me and gives me like a great feeling of um, challenging me to think deeper about certain subjects topics ways of thinking um man uh their brilliant words definitely literally go through more than just my mind they go through my body and i hope that the words um, do something for everyone out there listening to for you i hope i hope their voices and their words and their passion even are like birds flying around in your consciousness you know and uh so we have, we're lucky to be doing this we're gonna keep doing it um, and one thing that helps us continue to do it is folks that give us a monthly dollar contribution at our Patreon. So if you're interested in that, if you got a little something, something to kick to us to help us grow and maintain the show, um, it's really important and appreciated. And uh, we would be forever grateful for any dollar amount, one dollar a month or more. You can contribute at um, 
our Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash weapon of choice podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast. Become a weapon of choice community member. And uh, we really appreciate it. And, you know, you getting along for the ride beyond just listening. But we do appreciate every time you tune in. And uh, T-shirts, just DM us one way or another through any of the channels um, on social media. And we got some Buttersoft uh, cotton black with our, our logo on them T-shirts um, of all sizes, $24. Includes free shipping anywhere in the world. If you're a Weapon of Choice community member, there's $16. Just holler at us. Email us. Um, yeah, give us DMs or you can email us at weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. And uh, we're going to soon get into this uh interview that i'm so excited to present to you from uh a stop i had in chicago recently um we're gonna get to that we're gonna uh, continue to fight we're gonna continue to be like fuck trump and everybody fucking with trump fuck all his tweets i mean this dude if if anybody out there listening is like an animator like cartoon like film moving picture animator Get a hold of me because of I've I wrote something about this dude Trump and his tweets like three years ago, and uh, I was worried that it was gonna become irrelevant. But this this motherfucker won't stop. But uh, we gonna keep trying to make put a stop to it. But in the meantime, I got a, a piece that I've written that I just need an animator. I think it should be animated. Um, and it's crazy. It's hilarious. Of course, it's a dark comedy. Who are you talking to? But anyway, if you're an animator or know someone out there who uh, is down to work with an independent artist, holla at your boy. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, I was in Chicago um, and I had the honor and privilege and pleasure of talking to Hoda Katabi. And we uh, sat down actually at um, DePaul University for this interview. And Hoda is a political fashion creative. She's doing all sorts of amazing things. She uh, runs an online platform, Juju Azad. That's the name of it at the moment. Um, she's the founder of Because We've Read, which is a radical international book club. She is also a founding member of Blue Tin Production, an all-women immigrant and refugee-run clothing manufacturing cooperative in Chicago. Uh, she speaks. She, she organizes. She's an abolitionist. Um, she's been part of campaigns to end surveillance programs and police milita militarization. She graduated from the University of Chicago a few years ago, and she's done um, a lot of research exploring the intersections of fashion, gender, and the state of Iran. Um, I mean, Hoda's out there. Hoda is an inspiration to many, many people around the world. Her words are... Um, important, necessary, relevant, timely, needed, appreciated, and brilliant. Um, I mean, this is, this is a, well, you'll hear the show, but, you know, we met and she's kind of just been an inspiration, just uh, her presence and her um, passion for uh, the work she's doing and has, has been doing for some time and the stuff Hoda continues to do and the, and things coming in the future are just like everybody keep your eyes peeled, pay attention um, to Hoda Kotobi, who is a powerhouse for uh, many reasons. And so 
we were grateful to uh, have her on Weapon of Choice. And uh, so this is the interview with Hoda in Chicago. Enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. My name is Hoda Kasibi. I am um, Iranian-American, born and raised in Oklahoma. Uh, I am a political fashion creative is what I'm going with these days. Um, I run the online platform Juju Azad, soon to be Azadi, um, founder of the Radical International Book Club Because We've Read, and a founding member of Blue Tin Production, which is an all-women immigrant and refugee-run apparel manufacturing workers cooperative. Beautiful. Hoda, thank you, and thanks for joining us on Weapon of Choice podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. Now, so we actually met two and a half years ago on January 29, 2017. Oh, wow. My first time ever in Chicago. I was just filming a little film. We got on the train to go home and Muslim ban. Boom. Oh, my God. And I don't even remember that. We're at the airport. <laughs> we're at the airport. I'm actually going to close this door. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> these people are loud in that bathroom. <laughs> I was wondering where I remember you and it was bad. I felt very guilty about it. And it was but. crazy in there, but I was looking down and I saw a group of, a group of people huddled up. Like they were like, you know, like having a conversation amidst thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And then I took a picture. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Oh, and good times. That's not even, I was like, they're, they're plotting something. And I mean, like in the best, like organizing protest way. Look at that. What were you thinking right there? I was thinking, you didn't like fuck? something. You didn't, yeah. But there was like a cop fucking with people down there by the escalators. That might have been it. Oh, yeah. yeah. So then, and, but I, it, I was struck by, you know, if anyone like looks you up and you're relatively young, so to speak, um, and they, they're like, oh, how, how do they, Justin and I were just talking, like, oh, he's 29, I'm 35. You're, like, killing it. And, like, when I say young folks are killing it, <laughs> I say they're, that's the iceberg, like, watch out. And when I saw that huddle, I was just like, who is this person? <laughs> who is this person? And it turns out you are who you are. So uh, that was just a good oh, memory. And then we, we interviewed Marsha Belsky, who's a comedian based in New York now. But also, like, also an amazing shit talker. Also, grew up Jewish in Oklahoma. Oh, Oklahoma! So what's going on with Oklahoma? <laughs> Oklahoma's wild. <laughs> I I don't know how I feel about being identified as a shit talker. I will take it, but um, I don't know if I self-identify that. Way. I guess in my the place I'm coming from, <laughs> culturally speaking, is like that's, that's a high compliment. That's the upper Fine, echelon. I'll take it then. Yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> when it yeah. Um, yeah. Oklahoma was trash. Oklahoma was horrible. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you can pinpoint a time in your life, um, if you can pinpoint a specific time, even mm-hmm. better, or age, how old were you when you realized you're not normal? Oh. Um, I mean, like in a white supremacist world, do you mean? Or like, I mean, I, I feel like I'm a normal human being. But I mean, like... in the best way. I mean, in, I mean, in the best way. Oh. Oh. And like. Creatively or otherwise. Huh. I mean, I, maybe I haven't hit that point yet still. Like, I feel like I felt like I was different growing up in Oklahoma as someone who's, like, visibly not white and, like, visibly Muslim. But um, I think that's if we use, like, white people as what's normal, which I don't. So that being said, I feel like I'm normal. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, so you've 
we're going to get into all the things you're doing, but what would you consider to be your, your weapons of choice and what battles have you been fighting? Um, I also think that's like a really interesting question and not to like dwell on like the theoretical and, yeah. and just like take apart everything. But I also am wondering like, like how, like I don't even know how I feel about the term weapon. That's come up a few times, but <laughs> that's why we still ask it. Uh, so I think, yeah, I, that's something that I've also struggled with a lot as someone who like, I'm like, I, I feel like not like women are the future in like a white, like feminist sort of way. But I really do think that like any like radical revolution or systems change will be led by women of color um, and needs to be femme. Um, and that for me is really like important. And then but how do a lot of this like sort of um, maybe misogynistic or masculine uh, understandings of like system change, so like a violent revolution or like X, Y, Z. What is like, how does that play in my understanding of system change? And that's to be something that like transparent, I'm still like working on figuring out and grappling with myself. But um, that being said, to actually answer the question, <laughs> I think for me, arts is definitely um, the way in which I envision my role within understanding system change and my way of pushing for um, systemic change at a global level. I think that art and culture and particularly fashion, which is I think the, the medium that I've taken up um, the most, really is a vehicle for understanding not only yourself, but also I think a broader society and culture and being able to make a conversation about like international politics or imperialism more um, accessible by being able to talk about something that all of us engage in, and that's clothing. Mm -hmm. And and you had you had a book, yes, uh, Iranian street style. Is that right? Tehran street Tehran, style. Yes. Tehran street style. <laughs> um, how how was that experience? Um, I don't, I don't want to do the trite thing like what was it like writing the book, mm -hmm. but I mean, what were some things from conception to writing it to touring it even mm. that? Um, maybe took you by surprise that you learned um, some things about the actual pursuit that was the completion of the book that kind of like evolved in another way that made you think about things mm -hmm. in a new way coming off of the book being finished? Yeah, I love that question. Um, I mean, the whole book itself was sort of unexpected and a surprise. I wasn't planning on writing that book when I went to Iran. I was doing research for my thesis about the intersections of fashion, state, feminism, and gender um, within illegal fashion in Iran. And that was a lot of where my research was taking place. But um, as I was sitting in, and talking with underground fashion designers for like three, four hours and asking them everything that they believed in, I, I wanted to see how I could also, as someone who has the privilege of going back and forth between the United States and Iran, um, decently easy. Uh, I like. I wanted to know where I could um, use my privilege in a way to make it really um, to, to actually like support what's happening, you know, and like and like actually help Iranians on the ground and see like what their needs are. Like, what do you what do you need from me? So mm -hmm. the book actually came from um, interviews that I was having with illegal fashion designers and kind of asking where the gaps are, what they see my role is, um, and a lot of them actually mentioned the same thing in that. Um, they know my writing, they like appreciate my work, but uh, my work up until that point had always been like anti this or anti that um, with almost like a white audience in mind. And uh, they're like, but nothing really just sits and celebrates Iranians or like Muslims or whatever, at, like for the sake of just being celebrated. And then that as itself is a form of resistance is something that I realized. Mm. Um, and so my time in Iran and this book for me actually is a moment where my own understanding and my relationship to my work changes. Um, 
it changes from having a, a writing for white people, which is how I naively started my platform. It was like, if I convince enough white people that Muslims aren't terrorists, then, you know, we'll, we'll have a great day. But obviously, mm. I was like very young when I started. And I coming from Oklahoma, I think that's just how I thought that I could change people's understandings. Mm -hmm. But um, I think spending time in Iran and, and really thinking and, and being more engulfed in community organizing at that point, I had that book sort of marks a shift in my own understanding that I don't need to be writing for white people. I should be writing for my own people. And a celebration of my own people is that in and of itself is a form of resistance rather than like trying to just like, like be anti this or that or that. Mm. Yeah. That's amazing. Water. Yes. And I wish I could say thank you. I feel bad. I don't want to... <laughs> This is like he's, the bougie a, water too. He's a good dude. <laughs> I don't think I, I think it's because we didn't have a choice. You know, I think Starbucks is across the street. Oh. Um, and I don't think we had aw, a choice. That's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's alkaline water. Give me a break. Get out of my face. <laughs> uh yeah, um, and so you, you were you were over there, um, where there were like things that spurred along the creation of the book. You were in Iran, and after you were thinking about it and being in certain community spaces, how um, how has being in intergenerational spaces helped you grow? Mm, I also love this question. You have so many great questions. Um, I, I feel like Bluetin Production has been the first truly intergenerational space that I've been in. Um, so Bluetin Production, as I mentioned in the intro, is a, a apparel manufacturing which i'm realizing people don't actually understand what that is and i would have the same conversation and try to explain what we do like three times before it like clicks for people but like we are the step between fabric and then the actual clothes like that you wear yeah. and um i think people either think that machines still make your clothes or because like fast fashion and the fashion industry has done such a good job of like really detaching ourselves from the process of clothing creation people don't actually know how their clothes are made but um yeah so we like actually like so like with industrial machines clothing um and it is it had to be obviously intergenerational because um this project is here to to challenge both a lack of um ethical or sustainable manufacturing in the United States but really globally mm -hmm. um as most of our clothes are made in sweatshops and we've sort of normalized that so trying to kind of um provide an alternative for designers, but also uh, creating a space for women uh, who are immigrants, refugees, women of color, who oftentimes have the, the most barriers to finding work that is holistic and dignified, um, not like a lot of refugees, you know, come through uh, really white Christian refugee resettlement organizations. And there's so much infantilization, you know, they just feel like the first factory job they get, they just get to check their box of they got this refugee a job. Mm -hmm. Whereas these women are like, brilliant and like wildly talented um, and should be getting paid higher than industry standard because they're amazing. Um, and so this space, um, all of the all the three members are um, in their 40s or late 30s, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll say for the purpose of this podcast, late 20s, all of us are in our 20s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm kidding. But uh, so it's been a really, really transformative process for me. Um, not only just like being in a space that carries so much trauma as each of them, you know, have um, a lot of trauma that they faced before being in the space, but also just being in, in places where these are like mothers, these are um, aunts and community members who really are holding it down. And that's been so transformative for me and my own relationship to um, 
I guess, in a way, womanhood and my own relationship to um, being Muslim, being immigrant, um, sort of almost like seeing what, like what that, that, that experience is just like really, really powerful and so absolutely integral. Um, in community organizing spaces, I feel like we oftentimes lack an intergenerational approach to systems change or our spaces just really are usually post-college grads, which are it's super problematic mm-hmm. um, because it's it's really silly to feel like we can go into like a mosque or a church or any other place where like our, our elders are and try to explain imperialism when they've lived it, you know? Um, and I think we, we take for granted the experiences of the elders of our community that there's so much to learn from, not only like um, as they are our ancestors, but also just in the immediate, like, okay, if Trump, God forbid, has a Muslim registry, um, well, we've already done that. The United States already had a Muslim registry. Let's talk to people who are registered. Let's talk to people who are in that process. Right now, these child concentration camps, like, mm-hmm. we have concentration camps before. Let's talk about how we can actually, with people who have been through that, have organized around that. There's literally so much to learn, but I feel like those, there are spaces don't often, um, are not as intergenerational as they should be, but mm-hmm. that's such a disservice to all of us. Mm-hmm. And how, so with Blue Tin, um, the book, uh, because we've read even, how how has each of these endeavors been healing for you? Mm. Wow. I like this question. <laughs> um, I think they've all played a really formative role in my life. Um, I think Juju Azad, so the platform that I have, was sort of the first voice that I felt like I I felt like I was finally being heard for the first time in my life. Um, and being able to really take control of your narrative and stop waiting for somebody to give you a platform or stop, you know, trying to like go up the corporate ladder to get the job you want, just like create the space you want and then do that. Um, and obviously there's like some privilege I have to like in in being able to like not focus on school (laughs) and during college and like spend all my time creating this blog. But, um, that was really transformative for me and and sort of making, uh, allowing me to see that I can really do this. And uh, Blue Tin, obviously, I think I was just talking to my therapist about this last night, that I feel like has been and possibly will be the hardest project I will ever be doing in my life, Um, just because we're literally up against the entire fast fashion industry. um, And that's really engulfed within like the military industrial complex and globalism and capitalism and it's a huge monster and the fashion industry is so reluctant to change especially on the production or supply chain level and we're doing it with three women who come from very different backgrounds don't all speak english have so much trauma um that they bring into the space sometimes and i'm 24 (laughs) so it's a really really like intense process that i've i did not expect, I guess naively so. I didn't realize at that, you know, it'd be like a side thing that I do for like a few months and a launch and then like go on with my life. But like, um, I've like put out law school twice, um, like got accepted, deferred, dropped out, got accepted, deferred again. All my savings have went from law school to this project. So Congratulations. thank you. But like, I don't know, maybe I'll drop out again of law school. Cause I, I mean, before I start, because I, I'm real like I, my whole life, is now centered around this project mm-hmm. because it it really I feel like for me is the embodiment of something that I always feel like I hope that I live up to is just imagining the world that I want to live in and then work toward building that. Mm. So as an abolitionist like I there's a lot of 
obviously systems that I feel like need abolishing. Fast fashion is one of them. Um, and this is how I, what I feel like is my like abolitionist practice is being able to build up Bluetin to be successful on a global scale um, that it really can can hopefully cause a systems change down the line. And that's something that I truly, truly believe in, um, but is so intense. <laughs> and so when things got uh, to a to that level of intensity, um, and I'm sure with the industry, fast mm. fashion, it can be utterly frustrating at times at certain oh, turns. Yes. So how has community support, and I, I only ever say triggered in a positive way, mm. how has community support triggered mm. um, your imagination to keep going? Ooh, um, I mean, if there was no community support, this wouldn't have happened, like, easily. Um, I... It, it literally is just me and three women. And so without the without people literally believing in this vision and believing in not only this immediate project, but our larger goals of what we're hoping to see and sharing our vision for what this world looks like that we're trying to build, that itself is like the most powerful form of motivation and pretty much the sole thing keeping me going given that I'm have there's there's no money. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it, I'm literally living off of this energy and this belief and this trust. Mm. Um, and that is my sustenance in a way uh, that keeps me going. Um, I'll still like break down and cry. But like I, I know that there are people that I can call and at like any time of night and who have just been invested in this project at different levels. And they'll like be there and they'll like they'll talk through things and that I could never I could never underscore how grateful I am for like what has gone into and who has gone into making this space possible. Mm. Um, yeah, like I, I could like name names for like the next hour and mm -hmm. just like start crying about how grateful I am for like everybody who's been so it, like necessary for this project to be even slightly thinkable. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And, and Alexis Pauline Gums would, would definitely call that revolutionary mothering. You know, that that energy that's coming from all these mm. angles to spur this along and continue the work. And by the way, Blue Tin fundraiser, is that still active? Yeah, I just keep pushing the yeah. deadline and just allowing people yeah. to like donate as much as they want because we'll always use the funds. We're about to purchase our first commercial building. Mm -hmm. I've never thought I'd be like, okay, yeah, building between 700,000 and like 1.5 million. Um, those are never numbers that I thought would come out of my <laughs> mouth in terms of like a feasible amount. But mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. yeah, because we're, yeah, we have exciting plans and collaboration with a few other organizations too. Awesome. Blue Tin Co-op, go online, check it out and donate. You got to do it. Launchgood.com slash Blue Tin Production. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Traveling, traveling back to Iran, mm -hmm. um, and and then traveling in general because you've done a lot of that um, mm -hmm. in recent years. What um, are some things that you had to learn and unlearn about navigating different different mm. countries, continents? I love these questions. <laughs> um, definitely, my idea of what community is, and that's something that I had to unlearn the hard way and then relearn in a beautiful way. Um, I think for me, I went on my first world tour earlier this year in January and February and March. Um, and I, yeah, I guess in a, like a nationalistic thing that we always, I think is innate to all of us or not innate, but like we've like learned that like our people are anybody else who identifies as the same people within the borders, you know? So as someone who is like 
Iranian, I always view the Iranian community as like my community. Um, and outside of that, I would be obviously in deep solidarity with like all other people like in our collective struggle. But I think my like how I defined community was based on like ways that I guess everybody else defines community. And I didn't really put a lot of thought into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one moment of like intense clarity or I think a, a shift in that thinking was I remember that I was um, in Norway earlier this year and it was so white. <laughs> I, I, lived there, I lived there for eight months. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was in Trondheim, which is like the northernmost. Yes. It was also just so strange. Uh, so cold, um, literally and like metaphorically, I guess. Uh, and <laughs> I, I always say in Norway, I say hi and they say, oh, <laughs> yes, exactly. And like, that's just so like, unco- like, it's just wild to me. Um, but like, for me, I like I, I remember looking up like I was like, OK, I, I want to see where people of color are here in Norway. Like I'm here for like four or five days and I'm giving a few talks, but I, I really want to connect. Like, how do people survive here who are people of color? And I looked up. Um, I remember at that moment, I was like, OK, well, what do I search? Like, what community am I looking for that I... And so I was like, okay, well, let me start with, quote, unquote, my community. So I searched up, like, Iranians in Trondheim. And there was, like, an Iranian association. But then I realized that just because there's an Iranian association doesn't mean that it's safe for me to reach out to them because Iranians are so polarized right now. Unfortunately, there's, like, there's so much... Some of the most Islamophobic... all So many of my death threats come from the Iranian community. Like, Iranian men who are, like, super classist and, like want this like the the old like king his grandson to come. it's like the dumbest shit um and so the, yeah it's like super unsafe and i don't like i was i felt like i couldn't reach out to the iranian community because i'm visibly muslim and i don't know where they stand on politics or islam and therefore i was like okay so i can't reach out to them i was like who who do i reach out to and at that moment i was thinking a lot about like wow, what is what does community mean? And like, if I had to like, suddenly if I was dropped in Norway, like, where would I build? And who would I start building with? Um, and those were questions that I started thinking about um, in that moment. And then I remember that I um, I was on the in the airport, Norway, going to London right after that. And I like saw someone who was like, clearly Iranian. And I got really excited because I was hearing Farsi. And I like was saying hello. And she just gave me the worst look in the world and like walked away. And I was like, it's like, wow, all of my fears are like concerned. Like this clearly was not the community that I should have reached out to. And I'm glad I didn't reach out to that. But like, um, then like, an, like a, a, like a Muslim woman just like walked by, I have no idea where she's from. She like smiled, we like exchanged greetings. And I was like, huh, right. And I was like, Muslims. And then I land in London um, after like not seeing like maybe seeing one Muslim <laughs> in all of Trondheim. And mm-hmm. I like my it, I arrived really late at night and I my Airbnb was in uh, Whitechapel and I've never been to London before. And the next morning when I got out of my Airbnb, I like walked out and I see Muslims everywhere. It's so like much. East, East London, yes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, I felt like I was like dropped in Bangladesh. It was amazing. <laughs> and it felt like home. I've never been to Bangladesh, but like I was like, wow, like I, I understand exactly what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And even like there was a BBC reporter on the street who like came up to me. They're like, what are your thoughts on this incident that happened last week? And I was like, I'm not even from here. <laughs> so it was it was a really wild experience to go from someplace so cold to someplace so warm. Mm. Um, and and then also just thinking really critically about the talks that I've been giving, who has been showing up 
And then like the types of engagement that I get, it's always people of color and particularly Muslims. And for me that like, it's so beautiful because I feel like in this international tour, my understanding of community is now like so much more expanded. Um, and people who I will like point to and be like, you're my people, isn't just like maybe people who share my ethnicity. And that is something that I, yeah, it was, I think, easily the number one thing that I'm grateful to have learned throughout this traveling. And these lessons are just community combined, but there's so much more personal than that, you know, you're just in law school. <laughs> I mean, they can be, right? Like, yeah. Because that reflection is... That's that's like something that that, that Trondheim to London mm-hmm. that will never like really fade away in your memory too exactly, far. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's incredible. Because yeah. Um, yeah, sure, at a university, there's an international mm-hmm. diaspora student body, no matter how little or big. But um, mm-hmm. that is yeah, and that's what. And then you find yourself in all of that. You probably learned a lot about where you're from, mm-hmm. this country. And being gone. Oh, the United States. Yeah. Again, outside of <laughs> again outside of the academic, outside of the liter- literary, because mm-hmm. you're a writer. But like, mm-hmm. is there something like that stood out that you learned about being back home that wasn't just? Uh, I mean, we can rattle off the political shit, but oh, yeah. like, you know, yeah, yeah. For I mean, yourself. I think yeah. I guess I mean on the point of community as well. I think um, something that I was kind of keeping and not like and analyzing in the back of my mind as I was traveling was. Um, people of color in the major cities that I was in. So Paris, London, Trottenheim, and then Chicago. And, oh, and then um, Edmonton in Canada. So I, those are some of the, the major cities that I was having most of my talks in. And people of color were in such different places in all of those cities. And that's something that I also found very, very interesting and like was thinking through both like what I've learned as a person of color in the United States, but also like what black history particularly um, in the United States has to like offer to so many other communities globally, just because that history is so long and so deep here. Um, and for example, like thinking about like the relationship between London, um, people of color and Muslims and in the United States and then going to Paris and being like, oh, yeah, we're fighting for the government to see us. But I was like, it's funny because we're fighting for invisibility almost in a way. And so it was just it's so fascinating, I think, because of like 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 but because they were like invisible in France, then like they got to not have any of these like laws that target them, but they were still being targeted. It, it was just like it's so it's so interesting. Um, and I think that's something that I've been thinking a lot about, too, is like. Um, in France, for example, there wasn't really like a like Muslims slash black slash brown were kind of one entity. Whereas in the United States, I feel like racial lines among black and brown people are a little bit more distinct, like black and brown are like two separate categories. But in France, for example, when they're seen by the state as one almost, there's also like this sort of looking at each other as one in a way, too. And I mean, I think there are pros and cons to that but I that's also something that I found really interesting is like the ways in which we identify and the ways in which we also draw community borders um um in our like here in Chicago versus like London Hmm. also America sucks at internationality like international solidarity does not exist here (laughs) at all but everybody like everywhere else like people are thinking about the whole world like you like in London they're talking about Rohingya and like France are talking about the Uyghur Muslims but here like (laughs) People are like, where is Rohingya on a map? Like, um, you know, it's 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 wild. Like it's wild. Almost everyone is asking, where is Rohingya? Yeah, <laughs> it's like... yeah, it's frustrating. Whew, <laughs> so that's um, one thing. <laughs> your writing is amazing. Thank 
Was there a time, or can you remember a time or an age when you decided you're a writer? I don't even know. If, I remember yeah. I used to be like, I'm not a writer. I just write. <laughs> or I'm I feel not, like everyone feels that in terms of art, too. Right? Like, you have to decide, though, for it to go. Because, like, we're, we're already so oppressed from all these other angles. Yeah. Grant, oppression, access, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to our talent. Yeah, I guess I... I guess I haven't really made that, like, I don't think I've had that, like, moment where I'm like, I'm a writer. I feel like the only moment that I was like, I guess that applies is when I was on Instagram and, like, the business account, you have to pick the category for what you do. And I was like, (laughs) none of these apply. And so I was like, I guess the closest is writer, but, like, it feels so reductive. So that's why. Why why don't we? Because we, do we associate it with, like, do we associate with a career No, I just feel like. That that's I think that's how I started. Like a lot of my work started in writing, but like yeah. unfortunately, I don't do as much writing as I do now. Like I think like my time is divided between like blue tin and yeah. like community organizing. That writing I wish could take up more time, but so I feel like identifying as a writer period doesn't really encapsulate mm-hmm. where I spend the majority of my time. So that's why I feel like. But I, th- I mean, if I, I, I was ag- a writer, I wouldn't find it. Productive. I agree. I agree with you. So then I wonder how do we call ourselves writers? Why not? Necessarily meaning I'm I had commas. (laughs) You had commas. I'm a writer and (laughs) you know, just so it's in there somewhere. Um, what can really get words to pour out Mm -hmm. when they do? Oh, anger, easily anger. Um, I write when I'm angry. (laughs) Anger feels the majority of my work. Um, oh, I have a perfect question for that because I wanted to talk specifically with you about righteous anger. Oh, I love this because anger is righteous. People. First of all, if, if there's if there's any argument to be made from a woman, people call it anger. People, mostly men, obviously. Um, but like 99% of it at least is righteous anger. Mm-hmm. You know? Um it's 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 all righteous anger. Yeah. How do we honor righteous anger? Who? <laughs> um, who is we? Just your thoughts. <laughs> um, well, we, we, I mean, to, to move, for movements to get where they need to get, there has to be a, a higher level of consci- consciousness with, not people we're trying to convince that are just utterly racist yeah. and yada, 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 but mm-hmm. like still within our own communities, um, some of the most beautiful ideas and powerful movements we still shy away from. That's why you have the centrist left. and mm-hmm. the, So just, you know. Even just right here in this room, or when you, and we, we walk away today, like how do we think about how we honor it in terms of mm. just have it having to be just a conversation or interview about righteous anger? Like it's just, mm-hmm. I don't know how we make it change up the language or something, but you you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it's really the thing that matters. Mm-hmm. And if your name's Hillary Clinton or whoever, you're just angry, mm-hmm. you know. But or there's like, there's got to be a way. There's got to be. Kamala, you talking about Kamala? <laughs> uh, but there's got to be a way to. The cop, you mean? <laughs> there's got to be a way to um to honor it, and I don't know because I just wrote the question down. <laughs> I love that you lean in. I don't even like saying lean in either. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's so lean in is so such a white term, white feminist term. Yeah, so you're proud. Yeah, I don't know if I have an answer to that. I'm gonna be honest. Um, I think, I think. So I, I feel like I get called angry a lot and I'm and I feel like black women get called even like angry even more than me. So um I know that there's also like I 
I also like look cute and like innocent, so I don't get called angry as much um, as like. Uh, but I I think because I've like embraced it, I think people people like I, I feel like there's a general understanding that like anger um, is either paralyzing, which it can be, um, mm -hmm. or that you're allowing your emotions to take over, which I find a deeply misogynistic understanding of life. <laughs> <laughs> um, as like there's some sort of like binary between logic and emotions um, that exists, that they're like two separate spheres that have no overlap. Um, but emotions are so pure um, yeah. and so like uh, like expressions of your inner logic and your inner understandings of the world. And they're, I, I feel like emotions can also supersede logic in many um, instances as well uh, because logic is so limited. Like our, and I think when we get to faith, I think, there's also a lot to be said about like, or even science, like the limitations uh, of math and logic and numbers and calculations where um, emotions and um, our vast ability to like empathize can come first and mm -hmm. before that. But I, I think that it, it's also really difficult. Um, I think as like, because I also do like a lot of interviews all the time and the questions that get asked have should be responded with anger <laughs> so many times <laughs> um but then there you're also in this really tricky position because then if you respond with what is like fair and just then people will only listen to how you're saying things and not what you're saying and that's an unfortunate reality of the ways in which we've been socialized mm. um in this world and particularly in the united states that um any expressions of emotion um, a is seen as like femme and mm. then B is seen as invalid uh, I think that also kind of goes to this like very academic and like fake news also understanding of uh, the same sort of fact versus emotion when we're taught that objectivity exists mm -hmm. only for white men of course so white men can always be objective but anybody else will always be subjective um, and mm -hmm. so people are like I'm not encouraged to write about Iran because I'm too close to the subject matter. Um, whereas white men who profit from and literally are privileged at global white supremacy should be able to write about Iran when they can't even speak the language. So I think yeah. there's a lot of like um, ties to academia, ties to journalism, and this like fake idea of objectivity um, and just deeper understanding or patriarchal understandings of the role or lack thereof of emotion in terms of like how we engage with each other. Um, there mm. is also, I think, um uh also i think not like limitations but i think that there's also a place for um where we direct our anger as well too i think that oftentimes in community organizing spaces or in places that are intergenerational or we're in we're in places that maybe people um, maybe need a little bit more time to understand a concept or like experience it and live it, but don't have the words to kind of articulate. Uh, I think that there's a lot of also call out that is associated with anger that I think is also counterproductive. So I'm not saying all anger is good and righteous and should always be allowed wherever the hell you are. But I think that um, I think that there's a, a a way that anger can be directed that I think can be very very. Um, um, righteous and very empowering in a way, even though I, I hate the term empowering. But for me, at least, like I, some of my best writing, I feel like, has come at two o'clock in the morning when I've seen something and being like, "What the actual fuck? I literally have to write about this right now, or I can't go to sleep." That's how I earned earned it. 
Aaron Dati Roy. That's her. how that's how she writes. Like I can't not right now. Yeah. Like, this I just witnessed what Modi's doing right now. Mm-hmm. You know. And maybe what if we It's like freeing in a way. What if we honored Regis Anger by I don't I don't know if we ever call anger beautiful, right? Like mm. like the the beauty love, of anger. like if you think of these things that like really transcend culture, life, family, relationships, it's love, mm-hmm. it's compassion. Why can't anger be right up there? But but see, that's in terms of the beauty, in terms of the beauty like what we do with it essentially, mm-hmm. right? Like, but that because I feel it, but I do feel like the majority of the anger in this world, ma- yeah, is coming from white men, yeah, 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 yeah. and unnecessary. So, I, I do hesitate to call anger maybe beautiful because of because it's still, it, yeah, it's, it's it's still it, the downtrodden, the downtrodden nature of it is still too pervasive and violent. Uh, but I mean, like, I think almost any emotion can have can be positive or like happiness can also be negative if it allows you to just like feel comfort in terms of like not doing anything and just like an apathy you know i think that those could be also aligned or you could be happy because you like believe in your community and you're like spurred into action buying buying the 10 shirts instead of the one exactly ethical purchase (laughs) right (laughs) Uh, you've read them already (laughs) um yeah so what, what does patience mean for you good question i have no idea i am very impatient yeah i'm and that's something that like where everyone knows you to be impatient <laughs> like like seriously well i feel like i in any relationship i've been in i've like first i'm like i'm very impatient Uh oh <laughs> um i am you know and I, that's something that is a pro and a con i feel like i think i'm impatient for other people to like get their shit together so that's why i sometimes will just step forward and like those photos that you took just like huddle and like organize something or um decide that okay something needs to be done and i'm not going to wait because i don't have like kind of the same thing that the anger or it might not even get done if we if we yeah exactly (laughs) so um, especially as creatives right (laughs) definitely yes yes um meetings that don't need to take place for example um but i I, so i'm impatient in that way Mm -hmm. but i i'm definitely i think patience is something that i've been getting a lot better at through blue tin and i think that intergenerational space has helped me so much and just being able to like breathe and like stop and like check myself. And um, I'm very type A, like timelines, deadlines, everything is like on my planner um, that I handwrite. But for Blue Tin, because that's not something that I can put a timeline on because it's like other women's decision too. And it's their like emotional health or like mental, like are are we emotionally ready to work mm-hmm. today? You know, and that's something mm-hmm. that I can't be like, everyone needs to be ready, you know, by like next Friday to like get 5,000 pieces to make. But like, and that's so hard for mm. me. Yeah. Um, so this process has been really important for me and are like learning what patience means. Sure. So I don't have an answer for you yet. I'm still, sure. I'm still working on figuring that out. When you, when you see positive fruits of patience, do you find some peace there? Um, yeah, I think I, but my impatient side would kick in and be like, well, why didn't it happen faster? Mm. <laughs> but that's something that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you tired of hearing? Oh, God. Um, ooh, where do I begin? <laughs> um, I guess electoral politics wise, since that's what is on Twitter right now all the time. Um, I'm tired of hearing that people are good enough. I'm tired of hearing that at least they're not Trump. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm tired of the bar being set so low that we allow ourselves to compromise um, and we allow our red lines to be crossed. Um, I'm tired of a lack 
I'm tired of hearing of a lack of international solidarity. Um, things like not in my backyard, I think, are deeply problematic when talking about policing or militarism. Um, I think also in terms of what's happening with Iran right now, which is also really important for me, um, I'm tired of hearing people talk about war as this sort of like pressure point, whereas sanctions have been incredibly devastating and Iranians are living like it's wartime right now. So America is already at war with Iran. And like I like I want to push back against this idea that like like war is like the line that America is like not crossing and they're being so good about it when like they've already crossed that line. Um, and those two are intertwined. Mm. What do you love hearing today? Today, um, I love hearing I love hearing these great questions. They make me also like <laughs> think and revisit, I think, integral points in my life. I love hearing um, words of love and knowing and like knowing that people are going to be there and you're going to be there for people. I think always hearing that is like so deeply grounding. Um, I love hearing like prayer. Um, and it's probably time to pray soon. <laughs> so I'll be hearing that as I recite very soon. And I think those words um, that we recite in Arabic are deeply calming and grounding as well. So yeah, those are a few things. I like. And birds. I love birds. Mm. <laughs> birds chirping. <laughs> so when do you feel you're at your very best? Ooh, um, I feel like I'm at my very best when I've just finished really good ice cream. And I have, like, a plan. Like, when I feel like I know what's happening tomorrow and next week and, like, things are set in motion. Um, and, yeah, that's when I'm definitely my best. And when is the work most fun? The work is most fun most days. I think mm. work is most fun when, um, yeah, when you feel like you're you're really building something that is so... That, that's that so many people are invested in I think globally in a way um, and that just makes everything so exciting and so um, motivating hmm. what's the most profound answer you've ever received what um wow whether someone told you something or something came to you oh an answer could be from within could have been someone something someone said um can it be like a feeling I think um, I think whenever I'm at like a high with my spirituality and I'm like in a very good place and like it just it feels right um, and you just feel like everything, all of the struggles that you've been through, like everything had just happened for a reason up until that moment. And that and that, I guess, is, yeah, mm. that's the best feeling that I felt or like like sign, I guess, that I'm like I'm that yeah puts me in a good place. Mm. What's the most profound lie you've ever been told? <laughs> um, oof, that's a hard one. What is the most profound lie that I've been told? That America is trying to spread democracy? I don't know. That's not very profound. It's like basic. <laughs> that one didn't. That one didn't smack you in the face. But I'm sure, like some realities, have been like have 
I mean, I've heard like a lot of bullshit, <laughs> but <Yeah>. like, <laughs> dude, none of it's profound though, you know. Like, <laughs> I guess I guess we're doing all right so far. <laughs> okay, what do you want the listeners to know? Um, that you got this. Y'all got this. You got this. <laughs> you got this. It's doable. What art are you currently taking in that is recharging you, giving you life? Ooh, um. Childish Gambino's music and Chance the Rapper. Always, right? right? Just the windows down and the weather's so nice. And then some like really good tunes and instantly the mood is elevated. Mm. Do you watch TV, films? Um, yeah, I watch a little bit of Netflix. Yeah. Anything Netflix. anything engrossing? Um embarrassingly or otherwise. <laughs> I'm I recently discovered Jane the Virgin. It's cute. I like it. Um, okay. I'm also on like the tenth time watching The Office. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Those are my embarrassing. No British Office. No. Not yet. No, please. I have good taste in humor. Yeah, I mean it, <laughs> it doesn't hold up too well. No. Uh, <laughs> um. Hmm. Well, this has been great. Oh, thank you. We gotta Likewise. get out. We gotta get out of here. But um, definitely. Um, where can they find you on social media? Everywhere. <laughs> what do you go by? Um, Hoda Katebi, so H O D A K A T E B I on Insta, Jerem, Twitter, um, and because we've read on Instagram and Twitter, and Bluetin Production on Instagram, and then launchgood.com slash Bluetin Production to donate. Which you're pointing to on your yes, oh, and jujuaza.com. Oh, they're about to have a rebranding, but J O O J O O A Z A D dot com for my angry writing. And that's Farsi for um, Freebird. Yeah, is, it's getting a it's getting a rebrand. Okay, <laughs> why not though? Well, Juju is like it's like the child's word for bird, like kitty mm-hmm. for cat. Oh, um, and growing up learning Farsi because I was a child when I was learning Farsi, my parents would like talk to me like a baby because I was a baby mm-hmm. um and so they never corrected me um so now i i know the child's version of words for a lot of things okay. so yeah mm. i go to iran and they make fun of me great <laughs> so we're gonna change that was this good for you yes yeah i really i appreciate being on this podcast thank you for having me thank you hoda I'll talk to you soon yes. see you later everybody bye <laughs> Thank you, Hoda, for your time while uh, I was making a stop in Chicago. Um, everybody, didn't you just love what she had to say? Um, you can see Hoda's work um, on the Juju Azad website right now. Check out her Instagram. Um, you can even find pieces in the New York Times, BBC, Vogue. Oh, and uh, I mean, she mentioned it in the show. But again, uh, check out her book, Tehran Street Style, Celebration and Documentation of Illegal Fashion in Iran. Man, the hashtag is because we've read. Thank you, Hoda. And I hope everybody is uh, doing all right this summer. You can always let us know what's going on. Let us know what art is keeping you alive, what art is inspiring you, giving you inspiration to keep going, to create for yourself. Holler at us. Hit us up. DM us if you have to or 
holler at us an email that's weapon of choice fans at gmail.com weapon of choice fans at gmail.com we appreciate everybody tuning in you know we when the episodes are released we post on our facebook page weapon of choice podcast it would really go a long way if you could go on that facebook page when we release episodes make sure you like the page so you see the post and when we release an episode click that post when we uh when we post a new episode click that post and share it and uh we really appreciate that we need as much organic reach as we can we're just a little independent podcast out of minneapolis but we won't stop and uh we're grateful that we still have the fire and that we're gonna always have the fire to make this show and uh make sure that it goes down in history as uh documenting and um collecting the stories of these dope ass people these dope humans these dope artists so thank you um spread the word tell your people and i appreciate those of y'all who uh continue to listen and continue to show us love we will be back soon with another episode might be a bonus episode might be an interview we've got andy allo coming soon check that out um Hey, keep rocking with us. I'm rocking with you. Holler at us anytime. And uh, it's a blessing to be doing this. And Andrew and I will be back soon. Peace and love, everybody.